Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theatre writer and dramaturg. I'm Jenna Poffgray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 67 of Theater Forward. All right. Good to be here. So this week, we are excited to have another mailbag episode. We've gotten some really great questions from listeners and wanted to take some time now to answer them. And we've actually gotten so many, we're planning to have some more mailbag episodes in the near future. And if you've got topics you'd like to see us engage with on a future episode, please reach out to us with them and hopefully you'll hear them addressed in an upcoming conversation. So Julie, I'm gonna let you kick us off. Our first question comes from Michael and Susan Shaw. They are um, theater patrons extraordinaire. Not only do they are they subscribers to Forward, I think they see just about everything in the state and are lovely, lovely, lovely human beings. And one of their questions is, in spite of the general awfulness of the last 15 plus months, did anything good come out of the pandemic that you will be keeping? Uh, something that worked that you never thought of or tried before. Um, and I will start us off. Uh, one of the really wonderful things that we realized when we were doing digital filming um, is that we had the ability to do closed captioning and recognizing um, accessible theater and, and leaning into that and working towards it. So. As we continue with some digital offerings or filmed versions of our productions, we are continuing closed captioning. And we're also going to be doing, um, having an ASL interpreter come for the um, last Saturday matinee performance of every show this season. And uh, so working, working hard on that, and that was something that we could have we could always do, and the pandemic pushed us to now let's let's do this. Yeah, and I feel yeah. great about that. Yeah, there were a couple of things on uh, speaking specifically to the part of the question about what were things you wouldn't have necessarily considered or thought possible, and the pandemic kind of made us realize how possible they were. Um, and I think of a couple of things we're doing on the tech and scheduling end um, that are enormous quality of life improvements for all of us working on these shows and have not been um, unduly expensive or complicated. Um, the two in particular I'm thinking of, one is that because we were trying to keep different pods of our tech crews separate, um, we, we paid for an extra day of set load in before all of the shows that we were filming on stage, uh, before we were able to have live audiences come back in. And it made the tech process then with actors and the rest of the design team, lighting designers, et cetera, so much more efficient because with an extra day, the, the scenic load-in was, was pretty com complete when we started with the rest of focus and actors on stage um, in a way that made everybody's work easier, smoother, and better. And it, that's not without cost, paying for an extra day of labor, an extra day of rent of the space, all of that. But it's a huge bang for our buck in terms of how everybody feels when you start that first day actors on stage during tech. And so that's something we're going to do from now on for all our shows. Uh, another one 
you know, and this came as much out of uh, the We See White American Theater Demands document, as well as some of the quality of life, um, uh, you know, livable conditions, uh, conversations that the pandemic inspired. Uh, but we worked with uh, Actors' Equity Association to get permission to slightly adjust the number of hours that we can work in a day. Because for my entire career, the standard has been a six-day rehearsal week in the theater. That's the it's standard. One day off. We haven't had weekends off. for decades. For decades. And, um, you know, there's... The, it's usually for a fairly short period of time, the, this rehearsal mm -hmm. period and all that, and everyone kind of sucks it up and expects it. Um, but we worked with equity to negotiate slight, I mean, extending by half an hour, the span of our days for five days a week. And we're able to fit our rehearsal hours into a five day week and have a proper two day weekend. And for someone like me as the artistic director who sometimes directs shows, what it means, because I've always used my day off to do artistic director work. And now I'm like, oh my God, I can have, I have a day to do that and a day to be an actual day off. And that's pretty thrilling. Um, so, so that was something that, again, we probably could have implemented earlier, although I don't know if we would have gotten the concessions from the union to shift right. our days if it weren't for this industry-wide conversation about working conditions and a more humane schedule. But that's another change that the pandemic kind of allowed us to consider. And I don't know that we're going back from that because it's mm -hmm. pretty great. Oh, well, we start rehearsals in a few days and it's gonna be five days a week, woohoo. <laughs> Uh, you know, as as somebody who is, I'm I'm looking at the at the uh, just ridiculous grin on Jen's face, which I share. I can't. I mean, I'm counting down the hours until we're back in the room on Monday. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday uh, to start rehearsals for the amateurs, the play that we so much wanted to do um, and was closed right before the pan the, the pandemic started. Um, I think what we'll see in that, and this is my sort of contribution to this question, a deepening of what in our case was already a really amazing work. I've seen a couple of shows now that I saw just before the pandemic. Uh, School Girls, the African Mean Girls play at Goodman, um, which I saw at the end of July. And just this week, Bethany Thomas just off the charts amazing in her redo of what had been the American premiere of Songs for, uh, Songs for Nobodies, uh, a, a one-person cabaret in which she plays 10 different people, five famous singers and then five people who are their fans. She did that at Milwaukee Rep three years ago. She's now doing it at Northlight. Those of you who are listening to this, please go see it. What you're seeing from her is a vulnerability. Um, I mean, she's already terrific. I mean, I, I just I just love her to death. But but what you see in her new work is a vulnerability, um, which reflects what we have all been through. Uh, it captures something of the vulnerability in some of the singers she's dealing with, you know, including people like Billie Holiday and Judy Garland. Um, but it's also in, embodied in her as a person. Um, that was true of Schoolgirls, which was so much better than what I had seen either in New York or in the streamed version that Goodman was able to do. And you're going to see that. I guarantee you're going to see that in the amateurs, given the quality of our cast, um, our amazing director whose face I'm looking at right now, and just in general, a production team that is already had already brought so much to what it means to make art in a time of plague. Um, so that to me is a huge, huge, it's part of this overarching awareness that we're seeing um, from people 
um, in terms of the way we treat each other, the grace with which and patience, hopefully, with which we interact with each other. I think the love and appreciation for what we do is something we will never again take for granted. All of that is wrapped up into uh, actors coming back even stronger than they were uh, 18 months ago. I mean, we could go on for hours of positive about positive things that did come out of this time period. Um, we've already in, in multiple episodes of this podcast talked about all the bad things <laughs> for our field um, that have happened, but there are there are countless good things. And I, I would just like to add one more um, really positive development. And that is something that's not unique to the theater. We're seeing it in every industry across the country. And that is a new willingness of workers to stand up for humane and equitable treatment in their place of work and to say, I'm not coming back if I am not treated humanely and equitably. Um, you know, this is why there's an employee shortage and there's a lot of factors involved in that um, in, in every field. But I, I, you know, you do see the Williamstown Theater Festival interns or, you know, IATSE workers at North Shore. I mean, people, whether it's an actual strike or, or um, you know, just making public poor working conditions um, or just demanding living wages, I that's really good for our field because people who are not beaten down when they come to work make better art. And I think, um, you know, it, this is a positive. It's a good thing. And it's going to, in the long run, make our field much, much, much better. And it's all to circle back to what Julie said when we started, this is about expanding access. You're seeing this in greater attention being paid to women, um, to non-binary and trans actors and, and theater artists, um, to people of color, um, all of whom have had to put up with way too much for way too long, both in the theater industry and outside of it. And for and for us to be thinking harder about expanding access in every which way, whether it's streaming so that people who are uh, you know, impaired in some way uh, or geographically distant to us or too young or too old to come to the theater, right down through the kinds of people that we welcome into our spaces, which should be everybody. Um, this has been a, just a hugely positive moment for us. Well, Mike, I think that's a perfect segue for you to maybe read our next question. Uh, yeah, so this is a question from um, Elise uh, Edelman, who is, uh, those of you who are forward uh, uh, subscribers or attendees know her very well. Anybody who lives in Wisconsin, frankly, knows Elise Edelman, who is a, just a terrific um, actor. Um, and theater artist, um, somebody I have just adored for, for forever, uh, and who is going to be directing, another shameless plug for something that will be on the stage soon, uh, she will be directing a production of the Laramie Project for the out off the charts fabulous young company of First Stage. Uh, and the dates for that are December 3rd through 12th uh, in Milwaukee. Elise has a couple of, of really great questions. Um, so we're not done with you, uh, Elise, after today. But for today, one of them is something that has just happened. Uh, and she says, in terms of theater news on my mind this week, Jeremy O'Harris pulled Slave Play on Tuesday from its LA run at the Mark Tapper Theater over the theater group's lack of representation of female playwrights. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts and reactions to that decision. Can I jump in? <laughs> uh, so this is um, in response to um, Center Theater Group in, uh, in the LA area um, that has a 10 play season and they recently announced it and it's 
in many ways an incredibly diverse season. A lot of writers of color, uh, a lot of exciting new plays, some world premieres. Um, it was going to be the the California premiere of Jeremy O'Harris's slave play. It might still be, um, but. What was immediately notable to folks looking at the season announcement is that nine out of the 10 plays were written by men. Um, and in a field, we've give, done whole episodes on gender parity in the theater. Um, that's, it's not the kind of thing you can not notice before you announce the season, right? Somebody noticed it and decided to, to go forward with it anyway. Many people did. And, and what Jeremy O'Harris did was he, uh, let the Center Theater Group know through his agents that he wanted to start the process of removing slave play from that season in, in order, hopefully, to open up a space for them to program a play by um, a female or female-identifying playwright. Um, and uh, he shared that news on Twitter. Uh, and first of all, this is just another opportunity to shout out what a remarkable voice in our field, Jeremy O'Harris has become over the last couple of years. I mean, yeah. it's it's truly, it feels a privilege to be on social media in order to follow the things that he has to offer to our field. So that's great. I will also say that um, I was tremendously impressed because he followed that tweet up later that day, sort of responding to all of the attention that his announcement had been getting to say, Hey, I'm hearing a lot of people calling on all the other male playwrights in the season to also pull their projects. And I just want everybody, I'm, I'm paraphrasing horribly here, so forgive me. But he basically said, you know, hey, everybody, just slow down. I am personally in a position where I can, I really can't afford to do this. I'm working on a TV show right now. Slave Play is about to reopen on Broadway. I don't have kids. I'm, you know, I'm doing fine and I have the ability to do this in a way that's not harmful to my career or my family. We don't know what everybody else's situation is. And, you know, I'm using my voice where I can just, you know, let's support each other. Let's give each other some grace. Um, and I, I, for, I just have even increased respect for him um, for stating that, but I will also say it gets a little tiring that it seems to be predominantly people of color, women, queer artists, the ones who are willing to give up work, to give up income, to call uh, all of the rest of us to, um, to do better. And that burden needs to stop falling on well, those folks. I mean, it goes back to Karen Olivo having shouldered a similar burden and when nobody was willing to come out or just about nobody. Um, and and blast Scott Rudin because it because people were for understandable reasons afraid of the power he wields, uh, and for her to stand up as she did and really start an avalanche and lead a revolution uh, that led to him stepping back significantly. Um, you know, Jen, that reinforces your point. What I'm so excited about and what Jeremy O'Harris did is 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 not just the fact itself, but that in a year when we are rightly I can't emphasize that enough focused on the lack of representation of BIPOC artists. We have sometimes, in my opinion, in our conversation tended to forget that there are other constituencies that have also been historically marginalized, women included. You know, a stat we've cited on this podcast before, in Milwaukee in the last five years, 25% of plays by equity theater houses are, are done by women. 
that's just not acceptable. And the, and to Jen's point, you have to see it. You can't possibly not see it when you're looking at and programming your season. And insofar as you're not addressing that, there's a problem. Um, and and to have a, a leading articulate, passionate proponent of expanding our representation uh, for BIPOC artists. Also say, you know what, we're all on the same page, which is what white, we see white American theater said too, very clearly in its document. This is not just about us. This is also about women. We're focusing here in this document on race in American theater, but there are other constituencies which have been excluded. Let's not forget about those. And he did that very strongly uh, in, in what he wrote, saying we're all in this um, together. You can't pick and choose the marginalized groups that you're going to um, put forward. We have to we have to deal with every part of the exclusion that has uh, afflicted uh, U.S. theater. And, and I do can think I, it's- Can I add, oh, go ahead, as, somebody, as somebody who um, worked for 20 years um, as producing director for a theater company that was focused on gender parity, was making sure that there were women playwrights and directors and scenic designers and um, and, and an equitable opportunity. Um, I agree that um, our focus now has, has um, elevated, I won't say changed in terms of whose stories get to be told, but, but the idea that now that women, women playwrights are, um, well, we've done that. We've, <laughs> we've accomplished that goal. We haven't accomplished that goal. And, and so it's gotta be a, an and. Not what it sounds like in California happened is we're just going to focus. This is the one that we're supposed to, but we're supposed to be focusing on BIPOC playwrights now. So that's what we're going to do. And they lost sight of, of what also needs to be, um, be accomplished in this, in this equity, in this, in this equitable choice of whose stories get to be told. How did they forget that? women's stories also need to be told. It's such a blind spot. And, well, and some of for Jeremy O'Harris for calling it out. Well, and some of the best playwriting right now is being done by women of color. So you can, you really can have your cake and eat it too, which is right. part right. of the point. Um, but yeah, just circling back to what you were saying about um, Karen, uh, Mike, and the work that they have um been doing and and it's 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 yet another example of marginalized voices being the ones willing to give something up to point out other inequities and um that's that's something that really has to stop and i know that um you know we're certainly grateful for the work that that they are doing um with their colleagues at affect um affect.org uh but yeah uh it was exciting to see what Jeremy O'Harris did this week. And I imagine because he has developed a very big presence in our field that it will have results, that it will um, make change. And that's pretty, pretty thrilling. Well, we've already been gabbing for a while here and we've, we're just two <laughs> questions in. Um, I'm, I, I want to fit one more in at least before we have to you know, go to another mailbag episode down the road. So this one comes from Orion Risk, who is a PhD candidate studying theater here at UW-Madison, and they are uh, pretty extraordinary themselves. Um, and Orion's uh, question, again, one of many, so we'll hopefully get back to some of these other ones later. Um, this intrigued me. Uh, they said, theaters across the country have lost subscribers since March of 2020. 
What's your approach to cultivating new theater goers and growing audiences? <laughs> I can, I mean, I can, I can jump in. So I'll talk specifically about forward because, you know, their question is what's your approach. Um, so, I mean, we were fortunate in that we didn't have a dramatic decrease in the number of our subscribers, but it certainly went down and it went down really for the only time in our history. We've been growing our subscriber numbers throughout and, um, you know, the pandemic was the first thing that, that caused that number to drop and quite understandably. Um, so, we're talking about how do we rebuild that number of subscribers? I mean, they are, they're our lifeblood. It's why we're able to program some pretty um, exciting, bold work because we know we've got this wonderful cadre of support of subscribers that just will come along for the ride and know that they're going to love some pieces and like some and maybe not care for others, but that they'll always be excited and challenged and entertained. And, and that's wonderful. And it, they really are our, uh, our lifeblood. Um, I do think that uh, one of the things we are trying to do is leverage this new degree of accessibility um, that has come from digital theater and filmed versions of theater to um, cultivate people who maybe did not have the ability to come to see our work or uh, before to um, check us out when they can do it from the comfort of their own homes and hope that the um, caliber and excitement of the storytelling we do will entice them to uh, check out more of our shows. I think that's a big thing we've been looking at. Um, yeah, Mike, it looks like you've got it. Well, no, I just, I, and this is, this is par for the course with forward theater and with things we've talked about on this podcast. I mean, I think that we will entice uh, the subscribers we have to stay and win new subscribers forward and theaters in general, if we're paying attention to some of the many uh, new new voices um, that, that are out there that have been denied for too long, not just because, quote unquote, we should from an ethical or moral standpoint, but because, as Jen, you alluded to, that's what some of the best writing is right now. And so for us not to be doing that and engaging with it is just stupid. And I think it will challenge people to, to grow individually and in terms of what kind of art they consume. But it also means that we are going to be seeing some really, really exciting uh, work of a, of a kind that maybe we, we weren't seeing enough of in the past. And so on the one hand, and I said this in a past podcast, we do need to be cognizant of theater companies who are trying to survive programming chestnuts um, to help them ensure a solid foundation uh, of, of reliable season uh, ticket subscribers or subscribers who are going to plunk down money for that production. There's a reason the Christmas Carol gets done everywhere every year. But to not use that foundational support that you've now bought yourself to and, and leverage it to come up with, you know, exciting new opportunities for new work is just a misuse of resources. Uh, and I think theater companies do get that. I know we get that. You can see it in the kinds of things we're programming. And I, I, I think that's absolutely the way forward. It may not be people's instinct. There's part of all of us coming out of something like this in every part of our lives that wants to cling to what went before because it's familiar. And right now things are scary. But my God, the opportunities to explore and see new things in every part of our lives, including theater, is so exciting. Um, and I just can't wait to see what that means for theater going going forward, as it were. Well, I think it's there's a little bit of a yes and to that, Mike, which is that um, we can do all of that and we can take really tender care 
of both the subscribers that we have who stuck with us and the ones who are not currently with us because the world is scary and challenging right now. But there's no reason that those folks can't or won't come back to us over the next year or so as dear Lord, I'm going to knock wood, um, COVID, you know, becomes a more managed part of our lives. And I think it's not about coddling them. It's not about, um, you know, needing to dumb down our programming, but thinking about the trauma that everybody has gone through, thinking about um, how we can welcome people back with open and, and caring arms to experiences that will remind them of why being in a theater was their happy place. And, you know, again, that doesn't mean doing um, only chestnuts or anything like that. We don't do chestnuts at Forward. That's not part of our programming. But I do think thinking about our subscribers, thinking about what they need um, is a really important part of our job always, but especially right now, um, because they, we, wanna, we wanna take care of them and bring them along with us into the future. And this, I was thinking too, how um, it, it harkens back in some ways to the Shawls uh, question, you know, and the the good we found. I, we're in an odd place right now that we're back, but not quite. Not everybody feels comfortable yet, um, and and so the challenge is to keep those subscribers who are with us, who have paid their subscription, but still aren't. Um, comfortable coming back to a big group of people would still like to watch their um, their programming on their computer or on their TV and and how to keep them engaged. And I certainly think we talk about that a lot. I am hoping that other companies are doing the same thing because this is this is the transitional year. I had hoped that this was the year and we're back, but we're it's not. This is our transitional year in terms of we're still, people still have to show their vaccination card and they still have to wear a mask. And boy, I look forward to the time when we really can, um, as you so um, eloquently said, Jen, the living with the virus and, and how to bring people back and the, the appreciation of, of seeing live theater. And it's going, we're, we're, we're seeing that we're going, we had people come and see our plays, but um, we're not, we're not hundred percent back yet. And I look yeah. forward to that time. Me, me in too. The very near future. And my goodness, those were three really good questions that gave us quite a lot to, to chew on that would made for quite a full episode already. Um, so uh, yeah, I think we'll say that that's it for this episode of theater forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest and America, but we will be back with more mailbag episodes. So please do send, send your questions and topics for us to discuss. Um, but thank you so much for joining us for this one. I'm Jen Opoff Gray. And I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden. He dices, he splices, he opens <laughs> our mailbag, and he produces this amazing podcast. Uh, thanks to Scott. You can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter at Theater Forward. Theater, as always, spelled with an E-R. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And please be sure to leave a comment, drop a question. We'd love to hear from you. We're so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.